Have you ever received that phone call from one of your kids, mom, dad, I've been in an accident. Now, what's the first thing you say? Well, you know what it is. Are you okay? The first thing you ask is not even what happened. You know, that may come later, maybe come, maybe the second thing that you say. But the most important thing is, are you okay? In fact, there's a lot of things that you'll get to later. You know, later you'll deal with insurance. Later you'll deal with the damage to the car. Uh, later you'll get to, did you learn anything from this experience? You know, all those things. But not at the beginning. At the beginning, there's only one thing that matters. Are you okay? The most important thing is safety. And once that's established, then you can begin to deal with whatever else might come next. You know, the Apostle Paul had a situation like that when he dealt with the uh, church at Thessalonica. He received word that this church that he had started was troubled. They were confused about the future. You know, it's very easy for us to believe the wrong things, to be taught the wrong things. All it takes is someone to teach us something wrong, and we have a tendency to want to believe them. I mean, some of us, to be sure, are more, more gullible than others. Some of us uh, don't want to believe anything that we're told. We really have to check it out. Um, but a lot of us are uh, just willing to believe whatever we're told. And there's something within us that wants to believe whatever we're told. That makes all of us susceptible to being misled. And the believers of Thessalonica had been misled. And they were upset because of what they'd been taught. Not by Paul, but they, they were upset by what they'd been taught by somebody else. And so Paul needed to help them to feel secure. And then, and only then, could he teach them proper doctrine. And so as we begin this passage, as we begin the study of this passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 12. We're going to read the entirety of this, uh, of this uh, section together. Uh, but I want you to understand how it begins. The very first thing Paul deals with is their comfort level. He wants them to know you're going to be okay, you are secure, and then he begins to teach them proper doctrine. So in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to read the entire thing, then we'll go back and study it more closely, because there's a lot in here that we need to deal with. Paul writes, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message, or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming." That is, the one whose coming is in, accord, is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, 
and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence, so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. So let's go back and let's look at this a little closer, because as we read through it for the first time, it may be a little bit confusing as to what Paul is talking about. The Thessalonians who received this letter had a reference point, because Paul had taught them before, but we don't. And so we're going to have to explore this a little deeper. Deeper, In uh, verses 1 and 2, let's read those two verses again. Paul says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with him. Remember that? That's the subject. Jesus Christ is coming, and when he comes, we will be gathered with him, and we will meet him in the air. Paul taught that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. And so we're going to meet the Lord in the air. We're going to be the welcoming committee. Whether we're alive at the time or whether we've died, we will be, those that are dead in Christ will be raised from the dead, and we will all meet the Lord together with him in the air. That's the subject that Paul's dealing with here. And he says, with regard to this, verse, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. What do you do when someone misrepresents your words? They misrepresent what you say. You know, most of the time, we need to fix the situation. Sometimes, if it's not important, we can just let it go. But most of the time, if, the, if it's any kind of important message, we need to fix the situation so that the people are, that are being spoken to are not misled. And so that we are not misrepresented. Sometimes it's deliberate. Sometimes people intentionally say something that you never said. Maybe they have an agenda for twisting your words. Maybe they're mad at you for some reason. Um, but other times people just make an honest mistake. They, don't, they, don't, they didn't understand what you said themselves. And it's like the old game of gossip that you'd play in, in elementary school where everyone sits around in a, in a circle and someone shares a secret with one person that goes all the way around the circle and by the time you get to the very end somehow you're talking about elephants you know the whole message is completely changed from whatever the in initial message was whether it's deliberate whether it's just an honest mistake either way most of the time you need to fix it and Paul needed to fix this here someone misrepresented Paul's words it was probably intentional someone seemed, apparently had sent a letter to the church at Thessalonica as if they were Paul, and they were teaching Paul a different kind of message. It was probably one of the people that opposed Paul, trying to cause confusion in the church, really trying to destroy the church, and it could have if Paul didn't correct the situation. And so the, the effect of this misleading message to the church of Thessalonica was that it upset them. And so he's, he corrected the situation. Now, when someone misrepresents your words, there's a couple of ways that you can address the situation. One is go after the source and attack the source, attack them as being a liar. The other way is to just attack the message or correct the message. And so Paul does not expose the person or the people that did this. Perhaps he doesn't even know who did this. Um, but instead, he counters the false teaching with sound teaching. But before he gets to that, he wants to reassure them that everything is okay. He wants them to be secure. He wants them not to be disturbed. He says, stay composed. Don't let this upset you about any false message that claims to have come from me 
It's not true. Now, what did the false message say? Well, we can infer from what, how Paul addresses what it actually said. Because previously, there, were, there was something else that Paul had to address in 1 Thessalonians. Do you remember th- what that was? The Thessalonian believers, they were young in their faith. They weren't grounded. Most of them were Gentiles. They weren't Jews. So they didn't have a, a, a deep roots in the Hebrew Scriptures. And they were concerned about some of their friends and family members that had died who were believers. Are our friends going to miss out on the second coming? Are they going to miss out on God's kingdom because they died? Perhaps God is mad at them. And so God took their life. Are they, are they going to go to hell? Are they going to miss out on this? And so Paul addressed that in 1 Thessalonians. And he said, no, uh, people who die uh, who are in Christ, they're not going to miss out on God's kingdom. And so that's where Paul addressed it, and he said that they're going to be raised from the grave and we'll all go meet the Lord in the sky when the Lord returns. Well, now another false teacher, teaching has got the people riled up. The false teaching was this, that Jesus has already returned. And when Jesus returned, it was in secret. And guess what? You missed it. You missed out on it. That was the false teaching. And so again, these Thessalonian believers were, you could imagine they're quite upset. Is God mad at us? Did we do something wrong? Did we miss out on the second coming of Christ? Are we going to miss out on God's kingdom? And you might wonder, you know, with us looking back on how could these silly Christians back then believe such things? How could they have come to believe that Jesus had already turned and and they missed out? Well, The answer is probably that they looked around at all the suffering that they were going through as believers in Christ, the persecution that they endured, and maybe they just simply concluded God must be punishing us. If God was pleased with us, he wouldn't allow us to suffer like this. Maybe Christ has even returned spiritually, and we didn't even know it. You know, there's people today that spiritualize everything, Christians even, that spiritualize everything. And what I mean by that is, uh, there, there are some people that today that if you ask them about the resurrection of Christ, they, they say, oh yeah, Jesus is raised from the dead, spiritually. He, he sort of lives on like the spirit of Martin Luther King Jr. lives on. It's just sort of a good feeling that we have. And they, they think the same thing about the return of Christ. Oh, all those scriptures about the return of Christ, it's not meant to be taken literally. Jesus isn't really coming back as king on a white horse in the sky. We're not really going to meet him in the air. That's all just flowery language. It's an analogy. It's a spiritual allegory. And it just means to comfort us in whatever situation we're in. And so there's people today that spiritualize things. Maybe some of these Thessalonians were spiritualizing the message as well. You know, all of those spiritual allegory ideas, they're, they're just simply not true. They're wrong. Jesus really did rise from the dead. He really did have wounds in his body. He really did eat with the disciples. Uh, ghosts don't eat with the disciples. Imaginary visions don't eat with the disciples. He really did rise from the dead. The second coming of Christ will be as real and as tangible as the first coming of Christ. And so Paul needs to respond to these false teachings that have got these believers all riled up. And here's his response. He basically says, you know that Christ has not returned yet because there are other things that have to happen before he returns. 
Let's read about those things in verses 3 through 5. Here's what Paul says. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, the return of Christ, it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. As being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Paul says, before Christ returns, there will be an apostasy, and there will be a revealing of the man of lawlessness. Let's look at these two things. What is the apostasy? The apostasy talking about here is a worldwide revolt against God and specifically against the Christian faith. The scriptures that we can refer to, and there are many of them that we could look at, but one of them is Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 24, verses 11 and 12. In fact, that entire chapter deals with his return. But Jesus says, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. Another passage is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Verses 1 through 9, Paul is writing to Timothy, and this is the very, near the very end of what Paul believes, at least, is his life. And so Paul writes this very personal letter to Timothy, and he says in these last words that he wants to give Timothy, as Timothy continues on the ministry that Paul began, this is what he says in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, verses 1 through 9, but realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, Avoid men such as these, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus's and Jambres' folly also or was also later in that same book in chapter 4 verses 3 and 4 Paul says for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but wanting to have their ears tickled they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths you read that and I don't know how else you conclude how else you can uh, uh, conclude that the uh, scriptures certainly seem to be very fitting of our own society today. And we may, who knows, we may be on the very forefront of this apostasy uh, that is going to sweep up the entire world. Uh, we'll have to wait and see about that. But when the world revolts in mass against God, what's the effect on us as believers? Well, definitely we can be assured that there will be a probably a worldwide persecution of believers 
But even before that persecution comes, we're going to have to stand firm against a culture that's given over to wickedness. You know, the, the day of standing firm against the tide of culture has already arrived in our country. If I told you 20 years ago that people would be marching in the streets so that men could use women's restrooms and locker rooms, you'd say I was crazy 20 years ago. But it's happening today. People are so given over to a depraved mind. That's where our society is, at least many people in our society. There were some uh, that many years ago that foresaw this coming. And if you use your brain just a little bit, you can probably perceive what's coming next in our society. So there's going to be this apostasy that's coming, this worldwide apostasy. And we may be able to even see the forefronts of it, if not the actual forefront of the apostasy happening uh, in our day. We can see at least what it would look like. We can begin to taste it. Now, who's this man of lawlessness? Because Paul says the two things have to happen before Christ returns. There has to be this apostasy, and there has to be the revelation of the man of lawlessness. Who's the man of lawlessness? Well, there's some clues that we can look at. I love mystery movies. Uh, I love mystery books, but I love mystery movies even more because I like watching movies rather than reading books. Uh, but when you look at uh, a mystery, it's, it's, it's fun. Whether you're reading a book or whether you're watching a movie, watching a TV show, if something's not revealed, it's fun to sort of try to do your very best to put the, together all the clues. We're going to put together a few clues here a couple of times. First of all, we're going to talk about the man of lawlessness. Let's look at the clues that we have, and we will determine, be able to determine who the man of lawlessness is. First of all, we know that he's a human. Verse 3 calls him a man. This simple word anthropos, anthropology, the study of man. He's a man. He's not an angel. He's not a, some type of strictly spiritual being. It's not the devil himself, but it is a man here that will be here on the earth. Secondly, the man of lawlessness is a false savior. He's a false king who stands in contrast to Jesus. He tries to copy Jesus in many ways. I'll show you how he copies Jesus. Scripture says that Jesus will be revealed. The word revealed, when Jesus returns, he's going to be revealed. It's a very specific word. It's the word apocalypto. You know, we get the idea of apocalypse. That's what the apocalypse really is. People talk about the apocalypse. And they think, well, the word apocalypse means the end of the world. Well, the, the word apocalypse itself means revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, most specifically. And so Scripture very clearly says, and both in Second Thessalonians and elsewhere, that Jesus, when he returns, he'll be revealed. Verse 3 uses the same word of the man of lawlessness. Look at verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come until the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Apocalypto. Okay? And so the man of lawlessness is going to try to copy what Jesus himself will do. He's going to reveal himself. Secondly, Scripture says that Jesus will come. We call it the second coming of Christ. The word uh, come or coming is the word uh, parousia. That same word is used of the man of lawlessness in verse 9. In verse 9, it says, That is the one who's coming, whose parousia is in accord with the activity of Satan. And so we have two parallels here 
For you have Jesus on the one hand, who's the, law, who, who's the lawful judge, the lawful king. He is the one who obeyed God's law here on the earth. Then we have the man of lawlessness who disobeys God's law. And yet the man of lawlessness tries to reveal himself as a king. He tries to come in the same fashion as the king. There are other parallels between Jesus and the man of lawlessness where the man of lawlessness tries to copy Jesus yet in a false way. They both carry out someone else's orders. The man of lawlessness carries out the orders of Satan, yet Jesus carries out the orders of God the Father. They both are men with great power. The man of lawlessness in the scripture we just read has false signs. He has false wonders. He'll be able to perform miracles. And there's no sense in which we find in this scripture at least that these miracles are somehow fake. But they could be actually real signs, but they're carried out with the power of Satan. We know that Jesus himself, of course, has greater power because when he returns, he will destroy the man of lawlessness. And so it's clear that the man of lawlessness will try to be a false king. He will present himself as the king of the world. He will present himself as a false savior. He's going to try to take the place where Jesus rightly reigns. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, John writes, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. And so there's a mystery of lawlessness this scripture talks about. John talks about many Antichrists, but there is one that's coming. There is a man of lawlessness. There is the Antichrist. And that's who the, anti, that's who the man of lawlessness really is. It is what else other scriptures call the Antichrist. The other clue that we have about the man of lawlessness is found in verse 4. He will try to exalt himself in the temple of God. Many of you were here when we went through the book of Daniel. You may remember that in Daniel chapter 11, verse 36, there's a man in history by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes who committed the sin of exalting himself in the temple. And when the man of lawlessness comes in the future, he's going to follow in the very spirit of Antiochus Epiphanes, and he will try to sit in the very temple of God, make himself out to be the one that everyone should follow, the Savior that everyone should follow. People wonder whether um, Paul's talking about a literal, actual temple here, because as you know, the temple in Jerusalem, when Paul was actually writing this, that still existed, but it doesn't anymore. It was destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. So is Paul talking about an actual temple here? I think that he is. And so I think there's going to be an actual literal physical temple. I think it's going to be located in Jerusalem. And the man of lawlessness will try to sit and he'll probably be successful in sitting on the throne trying to deceive many. And so the conclusion we come to by looking at these clues is that the man of lawlessness is the Antichrist. The Antichrist is a political leader who misleads the world before Christ returns. And so if you look at your uh, least favorite politician and wonder, could this person be the Antichrist? Very well, maybe, I don't know. But it will be a political leader who will try to mislead the entire world. But until that time, the man of lawlessness is restrained by someone. We're going to call, for the purposes of this study, that person, we're going to call that person the restrainer. And we need to identify who the restrainer is 
is. Verses 6 and following uh, talk about the restrainer. We're going to look at these in just a minute, but you need to understand that these verses that we're about to look at have been hotly debated throughout all of church history. There have been many different um, fascinating ideas as to who the restrainer really is. Some say the restrainer might be Satan. Some say the restrainer is the government. Back in Paul's day, the Roman government, or in today, we'd say, uh, you know, the, maybe a worldwide government that's coming, or uh, maybe it's just sort of a general idea of the principle of law and order seeks to restrain uh, the man of lawlessness from, uh, from appearing. Some, some say the, the restrainer is the Holy Spirit, or it's the church, or it's the proclamation of the gospel. In fact, many of those that, that uh, believe that the church will be raptured prior to the tribulation period and later return with Christ seven years later after the tribulation period, they said, well, you know, the, it's when the church leaves that restraining power, it's the Holy Spirit taking the church uh, away from this earth, when that is gone, that is when the man of lawlessness can be revealed. And so they equate the church or the Holy Spirit or the proclamation of the gospel with the restraint, or, or could it be someone else? And so we're going to look at the clues and see if we can once and for all figure out, out of 2,000 years of church history, who this restrainer really is. At least we'll give it, our, give it our best shot, okay? Now, let's look at the clues. Paul says in verse 6, he says, You know what restrains him, the man of lawlessness. You know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. Paul says the Thessalonians already know about the restrainer. Paul's already taught them about the restrainer. Maybe he taught them in 1 Thessalonians. I, I, I don't think so, but I think more likely he taught them in person about the restrainer. He says, you already know this, this idea. Secondly, we need to keep in mind that the restrainer is on the opposite team of the man of lawlessness. Okay, they're not teammates. They're opposing forces. And so I think we can eliminate Satan. The restrainer holds back the coming and the revelation of the man of lawlessness until the appointed time. And so the restrainer is preventing the premature unleashing of Satan's full power and deception through the man of lawlessness. And so we can eliminate Satan from the idea that Satan is the restrainer because Satan and the man of lawlessness are on the same team. The restrainer is on the other team. I think we can eliminate the idea of the government. The restrainer is not the government. The, the government is not holding the man of lawlessness back. In fact, he's going to be the leader of a worldwide government. But the restrainer, on the other hand, is a hindrance, not a partner, to the man of lawlessness. And I would say that I don't believe that the restrainer is the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel. I don't believe that the restrainer is the church. I don't even believe that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. You see, nowhere in the New Testament do we have an idea that the Holy Spirit is withdrawn from the earth. That's just not taught in the New Testament. Once the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is here. Uh, nowhere do we find the Holy Spirit withdrawn after Pentecost. Jesus, in fact, said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. In fact, in this same chapter, in chapter uh, 2, verse 11, 
we see that the Spirit of God is continuously at work in, in judging people. And so it's not that the Spirit of God is left. I believe that the restrainer is someone that's not named explicitly in this passage, but it's Michael, the archangel. And I'll tell you why. In Daniel chapter 12, that verse says that before the final resurrection, the archangel Michael will arise. One understanding of him arising means that he gets up and he gets out of the way. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Michael's major task is protecting God's people. Michael the archangel is the military leader of the heavenly host. He's the one, in fact, who is likely to blow the trumpet and lead the charge at the final judgment. And the primary opponent of Satan in Scripture is Michael. Now, we know that Satan cannot stand against Christ. But the ones that battle each other in the heavenly wars are Michael and Satan. Jude verse 9. Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. You see, they're at war, Michael and the devil. Revelation 12, verses 7 through 9, we read, and there was war in heaven, and Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. In Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3, we learn about a mighty angel, I believe it to be Michael, who has the power to bind Satan and to throw Satan into the abyss. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3, John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon and the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. I believe that at the appropriate time, the archangel Michael, who restrains Satan currently from releasing all of his satanic power, will stand aside. And Satan will then have the freedom to raise up the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, who will deceive the nations. Shortly thereafter, Jesus will return and he will reign as king over the earth. The mystery of lawlessness that's talked about, not the man of lawlessness, but the mystery of lawlessness. This is what other scriptures might call the spirit of the Antichrist. 
It is present right now. It is at work right now in the world. But it does not have free reign to do as it wishes. The mystery of lawlessness that cannot be the full force of satanic power unleashed upon the world. But it is present right now. Let's look at verses 6 through 9 of 2 Thessalonians 2. And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and wonders, false wonders. What's going to happen to the people who are deceived by the man of lawlessness? We read what happens to them in verses 10 through 12. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. You know, some people might say, well, listen, that's not their fault they got deceived. That's the devil's fault. It's the man of lawlessness' fault. They're the ones that are doing the deceiving. That's not fair to judge these poor, dumb humans who get deceived. That's not fair, is it? I think Scripture would say it is their fault for being deceived. Every person must be held responsible for his or her own decisions, including the decision to follow Christ or to not follow Christ. Some people, like the people described here at the end, they will refuse to love the truth. They refuse to be saved. I've been uh, going back and forth in a forum online with a very uh, intelligent man who knows the scriptures, who refuses to believe them. And he, it is his life's goal, apparently, to try to get as many Christians to disavow their faith as possible. And so it's been a fun exercise for me to go back and forth with this guy. Here's a man who knows the Scriptures, very much so, has written books on the Scriptures. But his heart is set not to believe in God. I do not know what has happened to this man. I do not know whether someone hurt him when he went to church for so many years as a young man growing up, as he told me. Or I do not know if he has just by his own uh, intellect begun, begun to believe that he's smarter than everyone else and that all Christians are stupid for following after God and believing what the Bible says. I do not know, but there are some who will know the truth and yet reject it. And God says to them that they have descended into a judgment. You know, people begin not only by refusing the truth, but they refuse to love the truth. These verses say they don't have a love of the truth. I mean, it's one thing to be deceived, but it's quite another to think so little of the truth that you never pursue it. I mean, it's one thing if you're born into, let's say, a 
a, a Mormon family or Jehovah's Witness family, and you believe what you're taught, but it's quite another to not love the truth enough to, as to never question it, as to never wonder if this is true, if to never, as to never pers uh, pursue the truth with all of your heart, to never call out to God and say, God, if you're real, if I'm not believing something right about you, show me the truth. Send me somebody who, who might teach me the truth. Let me understand your word, Father. The people here that are described in these verses are guilty of not loving the truth. It's not just that they, weren't, that they were deceived, but they didn't love the truth so much as to pursue it. And eventually... Because they did not love the truth, they began to embrace falsehood. They began to celebrate falsehood. They became champions for beliefs that are contrary not only to God's word, but contrary to common sense and contrary to human nature. And we see that so much in our own society. Our society is so confused that we don't even know what the difference is between a boy and a girl. I mean, how ridiculous. How lack of common sense is that? But people have embraced this idea that uh, they go against human nature and common sense, not to mention God's word. In the end, what does God do? God gives them over to a debased mind so that they believe and embrace and love those things that are not proper. They're not given a debased mind over their objections, but they embrace it. They love having a debased mind. They revel in their sin. They find it a source of pride that their sin has caused them to be sick. Their sin has caused them to make bad decisions. And they love it. They embrace it with all of their heart. Those are people that are given over to a debased mind. You see, God allows those people who refuse to love the truth to have the consequences of their choice. It's as if he says, okay, if you insist, have it your way. And he lets them do as they wish and lets them receive the punishments that they so desire. The consequences of violating the will of God ultimately means that people bring judgment upon themselves. They bring condemnation upon themselves. People wonder, how can you Christians believe in a God that judges anyone? You brought judgment upon yourself. God seeks to save the lost, not to judge the lost. And if someone is so unwilling to be saved, then they have chosen their own fate. What does all of this say about God? It says to me this, that God doesn't want anyone to perish. God does, however, allow things to happen that he does not want. God does not want any of the wicked to perish. But he allows it. God allows to happen things that he does not desire. Every person that you know is on their way to something. They are either on their way to destruction or they are on their way to salvation. But everyone's on their way. Time is ticking and every moment brings us another moment that we are closer 
to meeting the Lord. And that's either a good thing or it's a bad one, depending on which destination you're headed to and your loved ones are headed to. What does this mean for us? It means that I think three things. Number one, do not be deceived. Jesus has not yet returned. We'll know when he does. There'll be no mistake about it. There will be precursors to his return. Namely, the, re, the removal of the restrainer. There will be the worldwide apostasy. There will be the revelation, the coming of the man of lawlessness. The question is whether we'll know when exactly the man of lawlessness arrives. So we need to be prepared today. Secondly, those people that persecute and marginalize us, they'll answer for their actions. And we're going to leave that in God's hands, for he's righteous over all and all of his judgments. And third, even in this fallen world that mistreats us, this world in which we suffer both mistreatments because we're Christians and even the common sufferings of man, we can find comfort in this fact. God is in charge. God is in charge. It doesn't matter who's in the White House. God is in charge. It doesn't matter uh, what your taxes are. God is in charge. It doesn't matter whether you're suffering a debilitating disease. It doesn't matter whether you're thrown in jail for your uh, beliefs as a Christian. God is in charge. God is always in charge. And God will finish what he started. And God will bring his kingdom in full. And he says to you and me, you can have a part in that. You can experience the kingdom of God in full. What do I have to do to experience the kingdom of God? It's real simple. Believe and follow. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the gospel and follow him and you'll be saved.